This is Everyday Wellness, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve your health and wellness goals and provide practical strategies that you can use in your real life. And now, here is your host, nurse practitioner Cynthia Thurlow. Well, I'm delighted this morning to be connecting with Dr. Judd Brewer. He's Dr. Judd, an MD, PhD, and a thought leader in the field of habit change and the science of self-mastery. Having combined over 20 years of experience with mindfulness training with the scientific research therein, he is the Director of Research and Innovation at the Mindfulness Center and Associate Professor in Psychiatry at the School of Medicine at Brown University. He is also a research affiliate at MIT. Dr. Brewer has developed and tested novel mindfulness programs for habit change, including both in-person and app-based treatments for smoking, emotional eating, and anxiety. He has published numerous peer-reviewed articles and book chapters, trained U.S. Olympic coaches, and his work has been viewed on 60 Minutes, TED, the fourth most viewed talk of 2016 with 10 million views, and others. Dr. Brewer founded Mind Sciences to move his discoveries of clinical evidence behind mindfulness for anxiety, eating, smoking, and other behavior change in the hands of consumers. He is the author of The Craving Mind, From Cigarettes to Smartphones to Love, Why We Get Hooked and How We Can Break Bad Habits. Good morning, Dr. Judd. Good morning. We were chatting a little bit offline, but you know, I think this is such an incredibly timely opportunity for me to be able to speak to you um, in this unprecedented time in our lives of COVID-19 and social distancing. And so... There are a lot of things I want to talk to you about, but what's up with the toilet paper hoarding? Like what, <laughs> what is behind all that? I have so many people asking me and I'm like, actually, I'm going to have an expert on it. I can ask him. <laughs> well, I'm not a toilet paper expert per se, but I do know a little bit about the brain. So maybe we could start there. <laughs> you know? That's great. And I think, you know, I think what's really relevant here is that our brains are just trying to help us survive, you know, and we can mm-hmm. think of the most basic elements of our brain being survival Two two key elements. You got to find food. You got to remember where danger is so you avoid it. Mm-hmm. And actually, that this can be broken down into three key elements uh, that I don't think really dumbs down the science, but actually is a good explanatory model. And many people have talked about this. You know, there's this a trigger, a behavior and a result. Mm-hmm. Or from a brain perspective, a reward. So if you think of it, you know, let's say you see some food, you know, you're foraging on Savannah or whatever the historical our ancestors did. Um, we see food, there's the trigger, we eat the food, that's the behavior. And then our stomach sends this dopamine signal to our brain that says, remember what you ate and where you found it. So it's actually set up to help us remember things. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that's important. We'll, we'll get into that more later. You can think of this in terms of avoiding danger in the same way. You're out on the savanna, things are uncertain, you're on high alert, you see danger, you run away, there's the behavior, and then the reward is that you live <laughs> to, to do that again. Um, so that's our survival brain. You can think of this as you know just helping us find food, avoid danger. Mm-hmm. Layered on top of this is uh, our neocortex, literally a new brain, which also helps us survive, but in a different way. Uh, it's involved more in thinking and planning, right? We all have a refrigerator. Most of us have a refrigerator now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we don't have to remember where food is. You know, it's as, is as close as our, our food delivery app, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, 24-7. So our brain is still using these survival mechanisms, but in a slightly different way, which is the, you know, thinking and planning parts of our brain, like the prefrontal cortex, they take previous scenarios and they project those into the future and say, okay, based on what happened before, I'm going to, I'm going to plan for the future mm-hmm. and do this that way. The, the problem here is that one, we don't have a lot of accurate information, right? None of us have lived through a, a pandemic of this magnitude before, mm-hmm. uh, you know, nobody's alive from 1918, <laughs> you know, the, the last real <laughs> pandemic. Yeah. So there's not a lot of information. Uh, and then on top of this, well, let's start with that. So with the lack of accurate information, our brain is still going to try to plan and think. Mm-hmm. But what it does is it starts spinning out in these what if loops. Like, oh, what if that? What if this? What if that? Mm-hmm. What if this? And that actually spins us out into anxiety and worry. So worry feels like we're doing something. But it doesn't actually do anything productive because it, it doesn't have accurate information to you know take previous scenarios and, and project into the future. And I actually 
I, I just put out a short uh, animation on YouTube that explains this, you know, past into the future. So, so we have that aspect, which actually ironically makes that thinking part of the brain go offline or not work as well, let's say, because mm-hmm. it's just spinning out. And the what if piece gets us all a little bit freaked out. Now let's add to this. This is getting to the toilet paper piece. You add to this uh, social contagion, right? So you can, you can prevent the spread of a virus, of a physical virus or a bacteria by distancing ourselves. And we, we we're seeing this. But um, on, you can go on the, um, there's another type of contagion called social contagion where you spread mm-hmm. affect or emotion from one person to another. The problem is if you go on social media, this can be spread, you know, somebody can sneeze on your brain from anywhere in the world. So, <laughs> so we can be spreading fear and anxiety and worry from anywhere in the world. And it's just our brain saying, hey, you know, it makes us a little agitated and it says, hey, go get some information. Help me figure out how to plan for the future. So we're like, okay, I'll go on the, I'll go on the internet. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. I'll go on my news feeds. I'll go on social media because I have, you know, I follow people that, that generally disseminate good information. But we go on there and we're going to be increasing our chances of somebody sneezing on our brain just by being on social media because somebody might be accidentally spreading misinformation or purposefully spreading misinformation mm-hmm. or just like clicking on the things that are, that are really fearsome and then and those fearful things will get people to then retweet. They say, oh, here's something dangerous. Everybody should know about this, trying to help everybody without stepping back and saying, hey, is this true? Is this real? Is this accurate? So there's that piece. Our brain's really going offline when we get panicked, right? So you can think of panic as um, kind of anxiety gone nuts. And, and mm-hmm. it, in the definition of panic is, is leading to wildly unthinking behavior, if I remember that correctly, you know? <laughs> Which is exactly what happens. So let's say we walk into the grocery store. Let's bring all this together and and, and uh, talk about toilet paper. So you walk in the grocery store with your list of things to do. Your prefrontal cortex is online. It's working. It's saying, okay, I have this list of things I need to get. You walk in, you see somebody with their cart piled high with toilet paper mm-hmm. and your brain goes, oh crap. Mm-hmm. thinking brain goes offline scarcity mind comes in and yeah. says hey there's a run on toilet paper you run literally possibly run to the aisle grab as much as left as possible and then you go to the checkout and then somebody else comes in and sees you and they do mm-hmm. the same thing and suddenly there's a run on toilet paper when you know there's there's no toilet paper shortage in the world that i'm aware of uh, we're, yes. we're creating that just because the grocery stores can't stock it fast enough because people see each other doing it. They see it on social media. I don't know why toilet paper became the meme, but it, it seems to be that meme for people freaking out and going in scarcity mode. So that's a long answer to your short question, but it actually highlights how our our survival brain, oh, poor mm-hmm. survival brain, just trying to help us out. <laughs> it gets paired with uncertainty and scarcity and suddenly... We're out of toilet paper. Sneezing on the brain that I may have to borrow that. That's, that's a beautiful analogy, but I mean it, but it's so prolific and so literal and yet so beautiful, like for in to put those things all together. And, and it's interesting. We were talking offline about this jokingly. I said, you know, that whole scarcity mindset for a lot of people and and you're right, it manifested into toilet paper, but it could have been something else. Mm -hmm. Um, Could have also been flour because you can't find any of that either. But it's so hopefully that's people just baking a bunch of stuff. (laughs) Well, that's what that's what I'd like to think. But but the irony is when in Washington, D.C., when it was clear to me what was coming or some sense of what was coming, I was smart and I got online and ordered a lot of stuff that could just be delivered. So I didn't have to deal with the grocery stores. Uh, But friends of mine who now after the fact are saying, oh, my gosh, I had no idea this was going to happen. And now I can't find bread. I can't even bake bread because I can't find any flour anywhere. So how do we kind of reroute the scarcity mindset that is encompassing a lot of you know very well-meaning people, people who normally are probably very calm and perhaps not so anxiety prone because this is so unprecedented. Let's start there. Like, let's start the discussion. How do we kind of work through that scarcity mindset when our brain goes into sympathetic dominance and we just can't process all of what's going on in, in a, in a proper manner? Yeah. 
So I think the first, well, I think of this as if we don't know how our minds work, how can we possibly work with our minds? Mm -hmm. So that's the way I think about things is how can we approach this from kind of under opening up and illuminating how our minds work. And if we can see that, you know, we've moved from a black box where we're just moving stuff around, not knowing if it's actually doing anything to causal, you know, um, oh, this leads to that. Mm -hmm. So here, I think just understanding that the scarcity mindset comes in as this fear survival mechanism is really important. In medical school, I learned this great phrase, if somebody has a heart attack, um, first take your own pulse. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> as somebody who worked in cardiology for 16 years, I have to agree with that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And the idea right. there is if we rush into a situation, we're, we are more likely to make things worse if we're in there panicking, saying, oh no, my mm -hmm. patient died. Then if we stop, take a couple of seconds to ground ourselves, ground our physiology, mm -hmm. and then walk in with our thinking brain intact. So from a pragmatic perspective, there are some very simple things we can do. Literally taking a few deep breaths can literally calm our physiology. Mm -hmm. uh, there are many mind short mindfulness practices that we can do. I, I like one, you know, because this, this virus is respiratory. So the, uh, our lungs and breathing aren't necessarily a, a very calm zone for people, you know, right now. Mm -hmm. um, so I like uh, the feet as an anxiety free zone. Okay. And just grounding our awareness in our feet. Uh, I, remember I, I, I taught this to a, a news anchor on, like in San Francisco or something like on the air. And he, he came into the interview really, he just looked really stressed because it was right at the beginning and like they weren't sure how far away from each other they should be. And I was watching them be like, don't get near me, you know, as they were setting up. <laughs> Poor guy. Yeah, I know. And so in, it was a very short interview. But as we talked, I said, you know, I, I try this thing, feel your feet. And so I said, just try it. And so he tried it. He's like, oh, I'm wiggling my toes. And he smiled for the first time. Aww. So it was as simple as like, and he was doing this on air, you know, like he had no time to rehearse this. Right. It's really that simple. It's like, oh, what do my feet feel like? Are they warm or cold? And I like the, um, I think of curiosity as a superpower. Mm -hmm. We can unpack that a little bit more in a few minutes. But it's really the heart of bringing, a, you know, an awareness to our experience so that we can see whether we're being, you know, we're, we're in scarcity or freak out mode. Um, and curiosity itself can really help ground us. So I like mm -hmm. giving people a very simple practice, you know, feel your feet. Okay, which foot feels warmer? Is it your right foot or your left foot? Right. And people are like, oh, is it my right foot or my left foot? Doesn't matter. <laughs> but it brings in some curiosity where people can really explore, oh, oh, this is what the temperature in my feet, you know, feels like right now. And so there's a great way to ground our physiology so that we can get our thinking brain back online. And then we can step back and think and then say, oh, do I need to rush in and do this thing that my survival brain is saying to do? Uh, let me see if there's real danger here. Mm -hmm. And I think that distinction is really important. You know, we talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs quite a bit. And the joke, there's a meme going around where instead of the base being, you know, shelter, food, et cetera, it's now Wi-Fi. The joke being that people, you know, they, they're so fearful of not being connected to one another, mm -hmm. um, or maybe they want to binge on Hulu and Netflix and you know, there's no judgment there. You have to decide for yourself what works best, but kind of grounding ourselves in practices that that make sense, creating some type of a ritual. Um, I'm finding for a lot of my patients and I'm doing everything via telemedicine that for them, it's it's creating small rituals that are allowing them, it brings them less, you know, their anxiety levels go down. They're like, okay, what day is today? Okay, it's Friday. It's important we know what day of the week it is because someone asked me the other day and I had to think and I said, okay, it's really important that we know what day of the week it is so that we can create some type of a ritual. And, and one of the things that we've been doing in my house, um, my kids are, they're schooling from home but they're getting physical activity and they're boys, um, physical activity in every day. And every afternoon, I, if it's not raining like it is, I go out with my dogs for a four mile walk. And that has been 
by far one of the most joyful things because I'm outside, the dogs are getting exercise, they sleep better, I sleep better. I get to see people, I mean, from an appropriate distance. I get to enjoy nature, uh, but creating all these new things that and habits um, and rituals that are helpful. But let's pivot a little bit because I know a lot of the research that you do is um, discussions on how we form habits and how we can... Um, if they're maladaptive, you know, how we kind of repivot or how we reframe things for ourselves. So how do we actually, how do habits actually form for us beyond just the, the ritual of doing the same thing over and over and over again? Yeah. Well, they, they actually are born out of this survival mechanism, right? Mm -hmm. So you can think of the habit of eating as, and remembering our food is as a very, Mm -hmm. you know, important survival mechanism. I've been using MitoPure for the last two years, and I've added this to my routine for multiple reasons. Number one, it's a foundational supplement for me and my family. It keeps things simple, and I know that I cannot get enough of urolithin A in my food to derive the same benefits. And if you're not familiarized with urolithin A, it's a signaling molecule, but it's also actively involved in anti-aging, energy production. And I take Timeline because of its remarkable remarkable healthy aging solution that activates key critical cellular pathways in my body. It's a total game changer for healthy aging. I alternate between using the soft gels and powder depending on whether or not I'm traveling. And we know that restoring cellular energy is a key to enduring health. And this is concluded in a recent publication in Nature Metabolism, which is a top scientific journal identifying that newly energized cells may provide many more years of healthy life to people. Yet as we age, we know that cellular energy production naturally declines and reduces our prospects of optimal health and longevity. That's the great thing about Timeline is you can restore cellular energy and support healthy aging. I've noticed the biggest improvements in my energy and sleep levels. We know that Timeline is clinically shown to give our cellular energy generators, the mitochondria, new power. And when taken daily, it replaces aging mitochondria. So it upregulates mitophagy and rebuilds new ones or mitogenesis. Timeline is the only nutrient that can do what it does. So Timeline renews your cells to a more powerful state. My listeners can get 10% off your first order at Timeline dot com slash Cynthia. That's 10% off at timeline.com slash Cynthia. I know you're going to love this product. A great deal about our focus on everyday wellness is on supporting gut health. And one of my new favorite ways to recommend to family and friends and even clients is to consider colostrum. And so Equip Foods has an amazing product that helps to improve immunity and gut health and recovery. And each scoop contains grass-fed, pasture-raised, antibiotic-free colostrum. And if you're wondering what colostrum is, it's a nutritional powerhouse that serves as the first source of nutrition for mammals in nature. It's been shown to enhance immune function, gut health, and recovery with vital nutrients such as lactoferrin, growth factors, and prolon-rich polypeptides. Colostrum is a natural milk-like fluid produced by mammals immediately following delivery of the newborn. And while colostrum is a dairy product, it does not contain milk or lactose. So most people with lactose intolerance usually find colostrum very easily digestible and beneficial to gut health. You can use one scoop a day. You can mix it in things like coffee or mix it in shakes or even yogurt or even some of your baked food recipes. As I mentioned, has a lot of health benefits, including research demonstrating the improvement in a reduction in inflammation, promoting good gut flora, and supporting restoring leaky gut to normal permeability. And what I love best is that Equip Foods is very ethically focused. Their cows are humanely raised and ethically treated, and cows produce an excess of colostrum when nursing. So only after their babies get what they need are they able to source the excess colostrum for use in their products. There is three grams of colostrum in each scoop and one serving in comparison to main competitors has just one gram. And research demonstrates that this dose, the three grams, actually promotes more benefits to gut health 
immune function, recovery, and vitality. So if you'd love to take care of your health, you can go to www.equipfoods.com slash Cynthia20 to get 20% off your first order. That's www.equipfoods.com slash Cynthia20. You definitely want to check this out. So think about it this way. If you, if every day you woke up and you had to relearn how to walk, how to put on your clothes, how to cook food, how to make coffee, how to eat, you know, we'd all be exhausted by breakfast. Mm -hmm. So it's really important from a, from an efficiency standpoint for our brains to lay down habits, to learn things and, and then lay them down quickly. And I think of this as a kind of set and forget. You set, you set how rewarding something is, and then you forget about the details. So how these, let's use a concrete example. Let's think of, uh, how about chocolate cake, for example, okay? So we've all, we all have a certain value of chocolate cake in our brains, and it's, it's mm-hmm. different, right, for each of us. And that depends on some really interesting things, including... Uh, when we first started eating chocolate cake, so for a lot of us, um, we associate or may not think of this consciously, but learn to associate chocolate cake or cake in general with birthday parties, right? So mm-hmm. when we're a kid, we eat cake, it's associated with ice cream, with friends, with presents, with parties and all this stuff. And every time we have a party or go to a party, that gets reinforced, right? Mm-hmm. So it gets reinforced over and over and over and over. And then, you know, later in life or even, you know, midlife, you know, we, we wonder why it's so hard to avoid eating, <laughs> eating chocolate cake. cake. And it's our brain saying, dude, I got this. You know, I already know what the value of cake is. It's really high. <laughs> <laughs> so don't worry about this. This is going to, you know, this is a good thing. And, I'll, you know, you think about something else. I'll just, I'll just plant, I'll tell you how good this is, which is good. Same thing for cigarettes. You know, uh, we learned to smoke cigarettes when average age in my studies of people smoking cigarettes is uh, 13 when they start. So they start smoking pretty young. So young, um, rebellious, um, trying to be cool in school, all these things Mm -hmm. associated with smoking. So they lay that down, they set and forget what the value is. And then they, they wonder why it's so hard to quit smoking because they've reinforced that habit loop. If they smoke a pack a day, they've reinforced it 20 times a day, I actually calculated this out with a patient who'd been smoking 40 years. He reinforced that habit loop. It was, I think it was 293,000 times. Oh my God. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So crazy. So it's important to know how this gets set up. It's that, you know, that th- those three elements are involved here, but we set these habits and then we set the reward value and then it doesn't change unless we bring awareness to it. So this is, this is what my lab has been studying and it's really fascinating. So you can't think your way out of a bad habit. You can't think your way into a good habit. You know, we all think, oh, I should exercise more. You know, mm-hmm. I should stop eating cake, <laughs> you know, whatever. <laughs> but we can't think our way into good habits. If we could we wouldn't be having this conversation <laughs> right? <laughs> because right. everybody's like, Oh, I should quit. Stop. I should quit smoking today. Done. <laughs> I will eat broccoli instead of cake. Done. <laughs> <laughs> if it was that easy. Oh You're right. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. And that's because the prefrontal cortex is the weakest part of our brain from an evolutionary perspective. It's the youngest. So it's the first that goes offline and it's the first that goes offline when we're stressed, when we're hungry, mm-hmm. you know, uh, all these things. You've probably heard the acronym HALT, hungry, angry, lonely, mm-hmm. tired, right? So my, uh, my patients with addictions, that's this vulnerability piece. It's like they need to be aware of those things because those are the times when they're most vulnerable to relapse because they're, pre- they're thinking brain, their cognitive control part of their brain's offline. So with that in mind, you know, knowing, and I'd struggled helping my patients to quit smoking and quit using drugs and all, and quit drinking all this stuff. So I started researching. I was like, there's gotta be something. What are, what are we missing here? And it came back to this thing that I learned in college, which was around, you know, operant conditioning, reward-based learning. I was like, well, this is the strongest part of the brain. Why don't we focus here? Mm -hmm. And it turns out that if you bring awareness to the current reward value of a behavior, you get accurate and updated information. 
And this is actually where, so the other thing that I study is mindfulness training and mindfulness is all about bringing awareness into what's happening right now in, in, in a curious, non-judgmental way. It's like, you know, I'm not judging you that you're eating the cake, but let's pay attention to what the reward value is. So we've actually even built in tools with a couple of apps, one, one called eat right now, where um, it's a mindfulness training for people to really pay attention as they eat. And we have people pay attention as they overeat or eat food that they, you know, that they don't, let's just say that they, uh, they're more addicted to or mm -hmm. have trouble stopping eating or whatever. And what we find is we can actually model this out mathematically that as people pay attention and they see what it actually tastes like, what it actually feels like, you know, what their emotions are, all this stuff, after 10 to 12 times of people doing this, the reward value significantly drops. You can, there are these, all these scientific mathematical models that, that bring this all the way back to dopamine firing and all this. Mm -hmm. So it's really fascinating to watch this simple, simple thing, which is just paying attention as you do a behavior. And that's what actually changes the behavior. It doesn't take willpower. It doesn't take grit because as we talked about, those aren't that mm -hmm. effective. For some, Mr. Spock, an anomaly, you know, I have a couple of friends who have that, that overdeveloped prefrontal cortex like him. Mm -hmm. But I would say for 99% of us, not the case. We've got to really go to where the, where the strength is and that's, that's reward-based learning. So we found this with eating. We found this with smoking. Um, it, and it actually fits with people's experience. They say, you know, when I pay attention, when I overeat, it just doesn't feel that good. You know, mm -hmm. a bite of cake is different than two pieces of cake, um, especially when I'm not hungry. You know, if somebody's right. eating because they're stressed, the cake might taste good, but it's not actually going to fix the root cause of that stress. So that's how we've been approaching things. You know, we, we got a 40% reduction in craving related eating with this Eat Right Now app, a study led by Ashley Mason at UCSF. We did a study with smoking. We got five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment. Um, and we even linked this up. I was doing this in collaboration with uh, uh, Amy Janes at Harvard, where she has this smoking cue paradigm where we can actually um, put people in the fMRI scanner, show them smoking cues to kind of activate their, mm -hmm. their, their um, this part of the brain called the default mode network that's involved in mm -hmm. craving. And then we can randomize them. We randomize them to get our craving and quit app versus the National Cancer Institute's app um, called Quit Guide. And then we could scan them a month later. And lo and behold, we found two things. One, there was a dose dependent relationship in the craving and quit group where the more modules they completed, the better they did. And the more this default mode network got quiet, the more they were likely to cut down on cigarettes. Where with the, with the NCI app, no, didn't matter. You know, they did the same number of modules, all that didn't affect their brain, didn't um, correlate with outcomes. So here we're seeing, we can line up theory into this simple reward-based mm -hmm. learning system. We can link it up with neurobiologic mechanisms mm -hmm. and we can line those up with clinical outcomes, which to me is the holy, the holy trinity <laughs> of yes. science, right? Theory, neurobiologic mechanism and clinical outcomes. I don't know about you, but I like to enjoy a nice wine glass after a long day. But the problem is that so many of the wines have harmful chemicals like pesticides or they have way too much sugar, which would damage your health in the long run. After doing some researching, I discovered Dry Farm Wine, the only health-focused natural wine club in the world. Their wine is all natural and additive-free, lab-tested for purity, sugar-free, and low alcohol. So you can enjoy the taste of good wines without the massive chemical or sugar intake. By joining the Dry Farm Wine Club, you can choose how often you'd like to receive the wines. You can choose monthly or every other month and how many you'd like to receive. And as a special gift, if you sign up with our link, you can get a bonus bottle of pure natural wine with your first order for just one extra penny. Visit the link in the description to claim your bonus bottle of natural wine and join the Dry Farm Wine Club. And the fact that it's so profoundly successful and that someone could use this, whether or not they are overeating, whether or not they're smoking, it's just those negative habits that they're trying to change for themselves. And it makes a great deal of sense. Although, you know, I have to admit, even as a Western medicine trained provider, not trained the same way that you are, um, you know, how many times did I say to my patients in cardiology, 
you know, eat less, exercise more, you know, calories in, calories out, yeah. recognizing it's far more complicated than that. But in our minds, we're like, why aren't they following the information and recognizing that? <laughs> exactly. Well, and, and, you know, I, I think there were a lot of Mr. Spock brains, um, probably not only myself, but a lot of the other clinicians I work with, we were like, we don't understand. Why isn't this easy? Why isn't this easy? It's easy for me, but right. recognizing that most people are not that way, that's highly unusual. So that just validates all of that. But I, I think one of the other um, habits that seems to be profoundly detrimental that I'm seeing with greater frequency and obviously with teenagers that have cell phones, let's talk about, you know, technology and social media and how this is pervasively, I mean, and largely from what I understand from the science is kind of rewiring our brains. We're getting these dopamine hits like constantly as people are checking their phones. I think I read something the other day that said, the average person's checking 200 plus times a day. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's awful. Like completely not the way that you're going to have a productive day. No wonder why people are struggling to get through assignments or get through. We, we have a, you know, an area of our home where we put all of our phones when we're working just because it's so much easier. Yeah. Um, but let's talk through that. Cause I, I know that that is becoming a growing issue for so many people. Yeah. Yeah, we as a society are in a vast, uncontrolled experiment with these these weapons of mass distraction. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, so uh, and I wrote an entire chapter in the Craving Mind about this. But I think there are some really, in, I think lots of things are interesting. So I hope I don't sound like a broken record. But there's no, a great. there's a really interesting aspect there that brings together several elements, and this actually ties into reward based learning a bit. So. One is that um, these are readily available, right? They're, they're, in our, they're near us unless we, like you, you um, smartly do, unless we put them away from us, um, mm -hmm. they're right, right near us. And I've known people who've actually put their cell phones in their trunks in their cars when they drive because they just can't prevent themselves wow. from checking their text messages when they drive. Yeah. So they do this as a safety measure for everyone. But the way that works is the, the, the way that we learn through reward-based learning is through, you know, imagine you're, you're on the savanna, you're scanning for food, and you don't know where it is. And then suddenly, boom, there's a source of food. So there's surprise there. So there's the surprise mm -hmm. element that fires off this big hit of dopamine that goes in our brain that says, oh, remember this, Okay. Now, when we go back there and it becomes a reliable source of food, that dopamine firing actually shifts from when we see the food or receive the food to anticipating it. So it'll actually fire and it'll say, hey, go get food, go get food. It motivates us, right? Any of us, we all know what this feels like, whether it's chocolate or cigarettes or alcohol <laughs> or whatever, you know, it says, oh, you're, you're stressed. There's that trigger. <clears throat> We, we get those ants in our pants that urge to get off the couch to go get some food, go get a drink, you know, go distract ourselves with Netflix, whatever. That's the behavior. And then the result or the reward, <clears throat> excuse me, the reward is that we, you know, we feel better, right? That stressful uh, thing or the, the negative emotion doesn't feel as bad as it did a few minutes ago. And so that, that can reinforce itself. So we start anticipating uh, the receipt of reward, and then we just do it over and over and over. Now, the, the most reinforcing type of, of learning is this reward-based learning, but it's, it's really predicated on what's called intermittent reinforcement. So the savanna, we don't know when we're going to get that food source, right? Mm -hmm. That's intermittent reinforcement. That's how it works to help us remember things. Well, the same is true when we put our alerts on our phones, when we turn them on, you know, let's say the worst would be if you turn on your email, your social media, your, um, and your texting, right? Mm -hmm. and, and phone calls, right? These things were set up to have us actually talk to each other. <laughs> uh, but I don't see that very often now. Mm -hmm. So anytime we get a ding or a beep or a bing, that's that's going to get intermittently reinforced to the point where you know we've now you know paid for these these are slot machines in our pockets that we've paid for yeah. yeah so it's actually they're set up because of the availability because of the intermittent reinforcement piece and because of all of these aspects of of um intermittent reinforcement that we can add to it you know email social media and all that that's where these things become so dangerously distracting because it's just our brain saying, oh, food source, food source. 
Right, right. From that very elemental kind of groundworthy, you know, position. And and that makes complete sense. And, you know, it, it's, it's interesting to me, especially because I now have children and they're kind of growing up in this environment and explaining to them that when they were, you know, they're almost 15, almost 13, explaining to them that when they were, when I was pregnant with them, when they were first born, there were no smartphones. Mm-hmm. So I don't have a gazillion selfies of me with my kids. I have tons of photos of them, of course, but explain them how this technology has evolved. And I, I remind them that it's a blessing and a curse. You know, I think it's a blessing that we have so much functionality in our phones, that we can listen to a book, that we can listen to music, that we can connect with people but it's also a curse because we have a whole generation growing up with chronicling every single moment of their lives and probably too much information is available. Um, and then also the the concern that, you know, is this providing such a distraction that we have kids that would rather connect with text messaging versus virtually being in person? Right. Um, we were talking about that before we started, the, yeah, the value it, it, of that connection. Yeah. And maybe we could even touch on that for a minute, because I think that's really important. Uh, I wrote a little bit about this in my book as well, because there's some really interesting studies showing that, you know, this was this is a study done at UCLA where folks basically showed they put adolescents in an fMRI scanner. They showed them their own Instagram feeds. And the only thing they manipulated was how many likes each picture got. Mm -hmm. And they found that that jacked the dopamine system, also jacked Mm -hmm. this default mode network that I mentioned as well. But it highlights something really critical, which is our brains do not like uncertainty, right? They're trying to predict the future. The less uncertainty there is, the more certain things are, the more likely we are to accurately predict the future. This is why everybody's so freaked out now, because we don't know what the future is going to look like. Right. And it's hard to sit in uncertainty because our brain's saying, dude, I got to survive. I need information. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that uncertainty piece comes in the form of communicating through nonverbal means, right? And even verbally, you know, oh, that tone of that person's voice, were they, were they this or were they that? Mm-hmm. Well, you can actually quantitate feedback now precisely. How many likes did I get? How many retweets did I get? How many X or Y did I get? And our brain says, oh, I'd much prefer this. It's certain, even though we are going to miss a ton of information. But our brain says, I would, I would rather have something that's certain, even if it's not as good as compared to, hey, why don't we talk on the phone? Why don't we get on a, a video conference or FaceTime so we can see each other? Because that's scary. It's uncertain. Oh, what was, what, what was that look? You know? Right, right. But that's actually where the, that's where life is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I think it's so important. I know even with the podcast, when we started consistently ensuring that we were recording visually and, and audio, mm-hmm. I feel like you get a much better connection. I mean, I, I feel like both people feel, you know, there's this flow of information. You can watch people, how animated someone's faces, you know, are they using their hands? I know we were laughing about that before, but I, I think that that's so critical, but it's all those nuances that you don't get when you're just texting back and forth or just emailing there there's something lost in that process and i'm probably dating myself when i say this but you know we didn't even have some of these some of this technology when i was in college or even in graduate school or i had like an old clunky cell phone that my parents made me take to baltimore because they were convinced i was going to have some untoward event living there uh, for so many years but you know looking back retrospectively i'm like we you know, my generation, largely teen years, 20 somethings lived without all this technology. And what a blessing um, that we got to live like free roaming, you know, young people, as opposed to now everyone's tethered to these devices so profoundly. Yeah. Yeah. We, we had no idea how good it was. (laughs) Exactly. So let's pivot and talk about mindfulness. And so what I know what mindfulness is, you do, but let's share with the listeners, like what, define it. What does it actually represent? There are a lot of different definitions out there. And I'm actually starting to shy away from using that term as much because it's so conceptual and people might, you know, you have to kind of get an operational definition, make sure that that you you understand it and that your understanding fits with everybody else's. So I like to break it down into the concrete elements. And there are two main elements that make up mindfulness is this awareness and then an attitude and quality. So awareness is pretty straightforward. We're either aware of something or we're not. And so that's pretty concrete. 
But also there's this attitudinal quality we touched on a little bit earlier around curiosity, right? And so some describe it as this non-judgmental elements or this non-judgmental attitude or of acceptance or curiosity. Uh, but the, the main focus there is not assuming things, right? We're not prejudging and saying, oh, I see that. I know exactly what that's like. It's saying, oh, you know, it's just like we did with the, that foot exercise. Oh, mm-hmm. what do my feet feel like? And not assuming that my right foot is going to feel, you know, more warmer than my left foot or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's about really getting in there and saying, what is actually happening right now? And that's really important. As we talked about with, with habit change, it's really important to get accurate information, not biased information. And our brains create biases based on these, all of our previous behaviors. I think of it as, you know, like for me, I wear, um, you know, so we wear these, you know, glasses, these subjective bias glasses as we go through life. So, you know, you hear, you hear the rosy, the dark colored glasses. For me, it's, it's dark chocolate colored glasses. You know, it's like <laughs> given a choice, it, it, like, you know, milk chocolate versus dark chocolate, it's a no brainer because I have mm-hmm. that subjective bias because I've eaten dark chocolate so much compared to milk chocolate. It's, it, you know, I know, I know what the answer is going to be, but there's a mm-hmm. bias where there could be some amazing piece of milk chocolate out there in the world. And I might just miss that because I'm like, Oh, mm-hmm. milk chocolate, whatever. Who, who would eat that? Inferior. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what mindfulness is about is about saying, Oh, well, let me try this milk chocolate and see, you know, see what, see if it's, if it's any good. And it's about bringing that attitude and quality and that awareness as much as we can throughout life, moment to moment, so that we can see when we're stuck in our biases and when we can and, and then step back and go, oh, you know, I'm stuck in my bias. It, let me see this fresh. You know, in Zen, they talk about the don't know mind, you know, and they use mm-hmm. that kind of as a mantra. Oh, don't know. As in, oh, you don't make assumptions. Does that make sense? Yes. And I think that's a beautiful explanation. I I don't think I've ever thought about it that way. And yet, you know, a lot of the work that I do is talking to people about being more connected to their bodies so that they can digest their food better and talking about where digestion starts in their brains. And so really, really helpful and will absolutely kind of guide me as I'm making, as I'm delineating this information with my own patients. Now, one of the things that I I found really interesting um, watching, not only just during COVID-19, but over the last several years, and and first time around, I was a poli-sci major. So I've always been very actively interested in the news, although the last several years, it's been harder to do that because the news is so biased. But I I also recognize that there's a lot of... um, Um, not only just on social media, but just in general about fake news. And so can we touch on why fake news actually spreads faster than real news? And, you know, how can we kind of work through that? Because I I think we're getting to a point where many people feel like the news is so, uh, so either it's so biased or it's, it's so non-objective that they just don't want to tune in at all. And I think that's just incredibly uh, unfortunate. Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered Armour Colostrum and the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armour's Colostrum strengthens immunity ignites metabolism, fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mycosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including 
including the antibodies IgG and SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And armrest colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced, and it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash Cynthia15 or enter Cynthia15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia15. You definitely want to check it out. Americans spend an average of 90% of their time indoors and take about 20,000 breaths a day. The indoor air that we breathe is two to five times more polluted than outdoor air, and in some circumstances, up to 100 times more polluted, according to the EPA. And did you know that air pollution is responsible for nearly 7 million premature deaths globally? So what's the solution? I want to introduce you to a product by Air Doctor that has captured the attention of established media outlets like CNN, ABC, and more. Air Doctor filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants so that your lungs don't have to. This includes pollutants such as allergens, pollen, pet dander, dust mites, mold spores, and even bacteria and viruses that have the potential to go on and make us sick. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day, breathe-easy, money-back guarantee. So if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Head to airdoctorrow.com and use code CYNTHIA. You'll receive up to $300 off air purifiers. Exclusive to podcast customers, you will also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit which is an additional $84 in value. Look at the special offer by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com and use promo code Cynthia. I absolutely love my air filters. They're an integral component to ensuring that the air that my family breathes in our home is as safe as possible. It is. So th- I think there are a couple of elements that we've even touched on some of the, the learning elements here. So let's bring these into the news realm. So if you think of survival, we don't have time to think when there's something really dangerous. And mm-hmm. this, is, this is borne out even in taste studies. You may know this, where when, there's a, when we put, have a taste in our mouth and it's um, sweet versus bitter, Mm-hmm. We're, we're, we spit out bitter within like, I don't know if it's milliseconds. I don't remember the details, but we'll just spit that out in and have that disgust bleh, mm-hmm. before we're even consciously aware of it because we don't have time to be like, hmm, is this arsenic <laughs> or is this hemlock? You know, yeah. um, <laughs> that doesn't work so well from a survival yeah. standpoint. Yeah. Whereas, you know, it's like, oh, is this milk chocolate or dark chocolate? I've got time to make that discernment. That bliss point. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So from a survival standpoint, we've got to jump out of the way of track it, traffic. We've got to spit out the poison. We've got to, you know, if somebody says run, we run before we look back and say, why am I running? Mm-hmm. Because we've got to be in a place of safety before we can look back and say, hey, was that actually dangerous? And then we can learn from it. So this is really tapping into these very core survival mechanisms, which is which say, you know, we don't have time, herd mentality, go. That's really important for people to pay attention to. So I think it, we just, they, we've got to let that sink in. Like, hey, people are tapping into these fear mechanisms. Now, I don't know when this started, but it's certainly been ramping up because it's so effective. People are more likely to click on, you know, it's even called clickbait, right? These, mm-hmm. these headlines that are fearsome because, you know, we'll automatically read 140 characters. That's where Twitter came up with their, you know, their original length for a tweet. We'll automatically read that. That'll get processed in our brain. And it says danger. We click on the thing before we're even aware that we're clicking on the, on the headline. Now, so that piece has been really helpful for people to spread misinformation or even, you know, if there's, 
I'm not sure if it's ever helpful to report something really scary in the news because you know there, there's got to be a better way to tell people in an orderly manner. You know, it's like right. you don't yell fire, right? We all learn this, right? <laughs> Do not yell. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Point it out and then in an orderly manner, head to the fire right. exit. Right. So, you know, the news, so the news, I would love to see them hold themselves to this standard. The problem mm-hmm. is a couple of things. One, we used to have um, uh, these things called newspapers where you could actually, yes. it was paper and you would <laughs> open it up and you would read it. Do you know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about. I I, I do. I was a poli-sci major. I had to get the Washington Post every day before I went to class. Yep. Perfect. So when you read the newspaper, the Washington Post does not know what stories you read. Mm -hmm. So they just have to objectively report the news. And their job is to do the best job of reporting the news in general so that you'll buy another paper the next day. So they make their calls based on, well, Let's just try to get good information out there. Now, they can track every click to say this story went viral and this story mm-hmm. tanked. And guess which one, guess which headlines go viral? It's not that people even read the articles. You know, they start getting into it and they're like, this is crap. This was a clickbait headline. <laughs> yeah. But the, the clickbait is what gets people to click on these things. And so now these reporters are incentivized mm-hmm. to, to report stuff that's sensational. And so it's not just the headline. If you report something sensational that's outrageous, outrage gets people outraged. Mm -hmm. And what do they do? They forward that article or that tweet or that link to somebody else. So somebody else catches that social contagion. Mm -hmm. So suddenly an article goes viral, not because it's accurate or informative or even helpful, but it's just it's just spread through social contagion that something was really, really hit somebody's fear centers. And then, you know, they started clicking and then everybody else, they spread the contagion through retweeting or whatever. And then everybody else caught it and spread it the same way. So we have this, you know, this is where social contagion is showing to be really not helpful in terms of spreading news. So the accurate news people are like, Oh, that's kind of boring. Hey, it's accurate. <laughs> As compared to the sky is falling, <laughs> you know? but it's not because the sky is falling is we're, we're like, oh, that's great. The sky is falling. <laughs> mm-hmm. Our brain is saying, oh, no, the sky is falling. I need to tell everybody. That's what was a chicken little. Whoever. Yes. yes. That's what chicken little did. She ran around screaming. Right. No, it makes sense. She was around way before social media. But the phenomena, you know, it's been around forever because that's a survival mechanism. So unfortunately, we're seeing this with the news. It's, it's, it's just so sad. It, it breaks my heart every time I think about it because it would just be so nice to just read the news so that I could mm-hmm. make it an informed decision myself as compared to, you know, looking for somebody to editorialize and tell me what to think. But it's just so much easier for people to just say, oh, tell me what to think or fear. You know, I can't think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> tell me what to do. And I think that's a really good point. I mean, I, I think that there is a a generalized lack of critical thinking. And so people really want to be told what to think. So they, you know, will attach themselves to a particular, and I'm not going to point any of these out, particular individual or a particular news outlet. And they feel like everything that comes out of there is the be all end all. And I remind people, and I even say to my kids that oftentimes now when I want to get objectivity, I have to you know, look at the BBC perhaps, or look at another, you know, station outside the United States, because perhaps they will give us the objectivity, whether I like the information they're sharing or not, gives me some objectivity to be able to then make further decisions. And so help us or provide for us some structure of during this time of, of COVID and social distancing and people are feeling, you know, maybe they're on electronics more, maybe they're, you know, reading more than they would normally what are ways that we can um, reduce our anxiety or, you know, reduce our fearfulness about what is to come? Because none of us know for certain. I think the other day I was reading that they're concerned about a food shortage. And, and I know I didn't look at that as a scarcity mindset. I wasn't out, you know, purveying beef, you know, distributors locally, but it did in the back of my mind remind me that it's something I need to be thinking about. So something maybe I need to, you know, maybe I need to, you know, 
order more provisions, or maybe I need to be more mindful about meal planning. But what are some of the ways that we can kind of navigate the near future and do it in a way where we can reduce our anxiety? I think there are a couple of things we can do. One is, well, I, I, I'll just repeat it because it's so important. Know how our minds work, right? So we've mm-hmm. talked about this. And what we do in our app-based mindfulness training programs is to start by just helping people map out their, their mindsets and their habit loops. You know, if it's a worry habit loop, can somebody map that out? If it's an eating habit loop, you know, what is it? Do they get triggered by boredom or fear or loneliness or whatever? You know, can they really pay attention to what they're doing? You know, are they eating mindlessly or can they bring some awareness to that? So that's the first step is, is knowing how our minds work, learning to work with our minds. And, and the other thing that I would say is that we can learn to embrace uncertainty. So mm-hmm. this is what is. We, we can't change the fact that we don't know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So what, what we can do is change our relationship to it. And that's another thing of, of what mindfulness is about. It's not about changing what's happening because we can't but it's learning to embrace what's happening and change our relationship to it that's really the key of all of this is oh you know here's anxiety can i change my relationship to anxiety itself can i here's worry can i see how that worry is is spinning out a, an anxiety habit loop and can i learn to unlearn that worry habit loop just as an example we have this app called Unwinding Anxiety. We just uh, published a study with anxious physicians. And we, we collected these data BC uh, before coronavirus. I don't know if anybody <laughs> can remember back that far. Yes. But BC. So believe it or not, physicians were actually anxious before coronavirus. And now they're just- No <laughs> way. No <laughs> way. Crazy. Hard to, hard to imagine. In fact, for this study, uh, it took a single email from the CEO of the medical center. This was at UMass Memorial. Single email um, to record all the patients that we needed because there were so many anxious physicians. <laughs> and and this was BC. Yeah. So long story short, um, they use this this app. And the reason we studied this app was because we wanted to, one of the barriers for physicians to learn mindfulness is time. You know, they don't, they don't mm-hmm. feel like they have time. We should be busy saving lives, not taking care of ourselves, <laughs> right? And the irony being, if we don't take care of ourselves, we can't save lives because we'll get burnt out. And so there's right. been, surprise, an, an epidemic of physician burnout. So we wanted to see, you know, with this, with this unwinding anxiety app, we're delivering mindfulness in short, you know, like 10 minute videos in the moment exercises, things like that, that people can take and use throughout their, their daily and busy lives. So we just want to see if they'd use it. And then we threw in some burnout questions as an aside, but we didn't mention anything in the training about burnout. Mm -hmm. We got this 57% reduction in clinically validated anxiety scores, the GAD seven, I'm sure you're familiar with it. Uh, the generalized anxiety disorder seven for folks that, folks that aren't. So this is a measure that I use in my clinic that it's built into all electronic medical records because it's really good measure for tracking mm-hmm. anxiety. We got a 57% reduction and we got a 50% reduction in certain aspects of burnout. These are all uh, highly significant. We just published this in JMIR a couple of weeks ago. Um, so the idea here is there are aspects like, um, like cynicism that are personal. So if we get anxious, that like burns up all this energy and then we get burnt out and we can get cynical about a system and all this stuff. Well, if we don't, if we can redirect that energy and learn to not be anxious, um, that energy gets freed up and that we can also learn to work with cynicism. Cynicism can be reinforced Mm -hmm. habitually in the same way. Interestingly, so we got a 50% reduction in cynicism, but in other aspects of burnout, this is using the Maslach burnout inventory like emotional exhaustion, we got a a significant reduction, but it was only 20%, which is really interesting to see because that's more institutional than individual. You know, Mm -hmm. the fact that people are overworked and not cared for by their systems often, I can, I can, I don't think I'm overgeneralizing when, when medicine has been moved into a corporate system and profit motives are Mm -hmm. are, uh, over, you know, above the needs of taking care of our physicians you know, those systems haven't changed. So maybe that dropped some, 
But it was only, you know, it, was, it dropped 30% less than cynicism because that's more of an institutional factor. So here we're even seeing uh, where there's a, it's not like mindfulness is this, this cure-all or that an app is going to fix burnout. But it, if we can target specific mechanisms, we can actually help people with specific aspects, whether it's anxiety or cynicism. Mm-hmm. And then it, it highlights aspects of things that we need to change on an institutional level. So we can direct our energy, hopefully our freed up energy, <laughs> not being as anxious to really advocate for institutional change, which is something that we absolutely need. Oh, without a doubt. Um, it, it, even hearing from my colleagues on the front line, the, the stories that they're sharing, there there definitely will be some changes that are that are coming. Well, I want to be mindful of your time, and I'm so very, very grateful that you joined me this morning. How can our listeners connect with you, find you, you know, between your book and your TED Talk, which um, was wonderful. I really enjoyed watching it. Thanks. Uh, I have a YouTube channel. It's just Dr. Judd, D-R-J-U-D. And I also have a website, uh, drjud.com, Dr. Judd. And those... um, on the website, people can find the apps that I talked about. They can find my book called The Craving Mind. Um, and we put out a bunch of, uh, you know, animations, um, articles, things like that. A lot of resources that people can find. We also have a free healthcare provider course uh, where physicians can get free CME on the website if they want to uh, learn more about mindfulness. So there are a bunch of resources on the Dr. Judd uh, website as well. So that's probably the easiest place to find me. And also I'm on Twitter uh, at Judd Brewer, J-U-D-B-R-E-W-E-R. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning. It's been a pleasure and I can't wait to have you back. Oh, thank you. I've, I've enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Everyday Wellness. If you loved this episode, please leave us a rating and review, subscribe, and remember, tell a friend. And if you want to connect with us online, visit the link in the show notes.